All right, good evening, everybody. You want to go ahead and find your places? All right, if you got your Bibles tonight and you want to follow along, we're going to be finishing up uh, Romans chapter 11, being verses 25 to 36. And the title of our lesson is A Right Vision of God. A Right Vision of God. Romans 11, 25 to 36. Now, next week, things are going to change uh, pretty drastically. Uh, we've been in Romans now for 11 chapters, and most of that has been some fairly deep theology. But next week, we're going to get into some very practical uh, theology. We're going to talk about things like how to behave like a Christian, how to love your neighbor, subjection to government, um, uh, how to t live by godly principles, just to name a few. So we're going to go from deep theology to very, very practical things that Paul is going to teach us. Now, it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting. Uh, but tonight, we have to wrap up. Uh, chapters 9 through 11. Now, we've been in these three chapters for two and a half months. Um, and as most of you know by now, these three chapters are all about one thing. They are dealing with the problem of Israel. The problem being that Israel is the chosen people of God. They have been given unparalleled privileges by God. And yet they are, as a whole, they are lost. As Paul said in chapter 9, they are a curse. They are cut off from Christ. And so Paul has been dealing with that in chapter 9, in chapter 10, and into chapter 11, this problem of the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, before we get to tonight's verses, because this will be the last verses of this section, I want to review a few things that Paul has said in these chapters about God. These aren't things that I said. These are things that Paul said. Now, I'm not going to elaborate I'm just going to read the things that he said. Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 18. So then, Paul says, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Romans eleven five. so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Romans eleven seven and 8, the elect obtained it, talking about the righteousness of God, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now listen, over the last two and a half months, we have learned a lot about God, a lot in these chapters. It's been some, to me, it's just an incredible journey. But you cannot come out of these three chapters without one just overriding theme rising to the top of Paul's vision of God and that is that God is sovereign. God is in complete and utter control. Now, 
we're going to talk about that tonight. I'm going to challenge you tonight to think about your vision of God. A.W. Tozer said this, one of my favorite quotes. He said this, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now think about that. When you think, he says, whatever you think about, when you think about God, that's the most important thing about you. You see, everybody thinks about God. The atheist thinks about God, and they come to the conclusion, I don't believe he exists. The agnostic thinks about God, and they think, well, there's not enough evidence. You can't really go one way or the other, and I don't think it's important enough to really figure it out. And then you've got what I call the people that think about God and see him as a watchmaker. He he created the world, he created the universe, he wound it all up, and he just steps back and crosses his arms and sees, you know, sees what's going to happen. And then there's a, a group that think about God, and they see him, yeah, he's God, but he's, he's got some power, but he can't really do everything he needs to do. You know, I, I remember in, in being in this church uh, a few years ago, and, and a certain president got elected, and somebody said to me, well, that wasn't God's will. I said, do you even read your Bible? Of course it was God's will. But see, their vision of a God is of a God with one hand tied behind his back. A God that's powerful, but he's not quite powerful enough to make sure that his will gets done on a daily basis. And then you've got these people like Paul. And when they look at God, they say, God is sovereign. God is in control. Now, my question is, which one of those, do you, which, which one of those visions of God is in your mind? What do you think? What do you see when you think about God? And we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But first, I want to get to the verses. Now, Paul's going to do two things tonight. The first thing he's going to do, he's going to kind of wrap up his teaching on Jews and Gentiles and Israel. He's going to wrap that up. And then he is going to break into this doxology of praise. And I'll explain what that is when we get there. And I'll tell you also why he... Uh, does it. So let's start with verse 25. If you got your Bibles open there and you want to follow along. Romans eleven twenty-five. Paul says this, lest you be wise in your own sight. Okay, so this is what he's saying. Just in case you think you got it all figured out. That's what he's saying. Just in case you got, think you got it all figured out. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Now he's about to tell us a mystery. Now, by the way, a mystery means you're not going to know all the details. That's what a mystery is, right? We, 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 there's things we don't know. So he's saying, hey, I've been talking about Israel and the Jews and the Gentiles and all this. And he said, lest you think you got it all figured out by this time. He said, I want to tell you this mystery. And this is the mystery. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. For 2,000 years, God has been hardening the Jews. And that was always his plan. You remember a few weeks ago, we went all the way back to Deuteronomy, where Moses said it would happen. We went to Isaiah, where Isaiah said this is going to happen. And then Jesus said it was going to happen. You remember what he said? He said, men will come from the east and the west to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the children of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. Jesus said it was going to happen, that God is going to turn from the Jews, and turn to the Gentiles. And for 2,000 years, he's been doing that. The, I mean, just huge millions upon millions of Gentiles have come into the kingdom, while relatively very few Jews have. Now, by the way, there's always a remnant. We've talked about that, chosen by grace. 
But the number of Jews that are being saved on a yearly basis is a very, very small number. It's been that way for 2,000 years. It'll be that way, Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles. There's coming a time when God's plans and purposes for the Gentiles is complete. He's done everything with the Gentiles he wants to do. And at that time, God will remove the hardening from the Jews. He will remove the hardening from the nation of Israel. And this is what will happen, verse 26. And in this way, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And that doesn't mean that every Jew who's ever lived is going to be saved. We know that's not true. But in that day, all the Jews that are alive, the nation of Israel will turn to Jesus. They will accept him as their Messiah. It's going to be a, a, a wonderful day. And then Paul says this, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. You see, the Jews have fought against, they, they think Christianity is idol worship. They think if you worship Jesus, you're worshiping an idol. In fact, did you know today, if you try to go into Israel as a missionary, that they can reject your application? That's one of the things that's on their list to keep you out of Israel. If you're trying to come in there and preach Jesus, they have every right to keep you out. That's one of the things they won't accept. So they are enemies of the gospel. But notice what he says. But as regards election, as regards being chosen by God, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see, God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will keep those promises when it comes to Israel. He will not take those promises back. God has a plan for Israel. They will come to the point where they accept Jesus as their Messiah. Now, Paul could have stopped there, but he doesn't. He he wants to take us a little bit further into this mystery, and he wants to show how it connects once again with the sovereignty of God. Look at verses 30 to 32. And and by the way, before I read this, I want you to make sure you understand, this is a mystery. Everybody with me? We're not going to understand it all. He's just telling us about this mystery. He said this, For just as you were at one time disobedient. Now that's all of us, by the way. We were all at one time disobedient. We weren't born into this world Christians. We're at one time, we're all disobedient. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Remember, the only reason God has turned to the Gentiles is because the, the, uh, the Jews have rejected him. So he says, okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. It was always his plan, but because of their disobedience, the gospel came to us. Verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. Somehow, some way, God is going to use the mercy shown to the Gentiles to turn around And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, he's going to show mercy to Israel. Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now that all there means all. He he, he has consigned consigned all, both Jews and Gentiles, to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, once again, both Jews and Gentiles. Now I want you to notice very carefully what Paul has just said. You see, God doesn't just control who will be president. The Bible says in Daniel, I believe, that he raises up kings and he brings them down. When Obama was president, it was God's will. 
When Trump came to be president, it was God's will. And whether you like it or not, if Biden is president, it's God's will. He raises them up, he brings them down. Sometimes he does it for mercy, sometimes he does it for judgment. But God is in complete control. Paul says in Acts 17 that he, he's brought every nation from one man and determined their sizes and their boundaries. But he doesn't just decide who will be president. He doesn't decide what nations and how big they're going to get and what their boundaries are going to be. He controls who will be disobedient. It says he has consigned all to disobedience. Now, why does he do that? Why does God take on this level of control when it comes to disobedience and mercy? Listen, folks, I've said it a thousand times in this study. And if we haven't figured it out, by now, we will never figure it out. Why does God take control? Well, Romans eleven thirty two said, God is consigned all to disobedience that He, He may have mercy on all. See, the reason God exhibits the level of control He has when it comes to mercy and disobedience and salvation is He will stop so that He can stop the mouth of human pride and that His glory, His mercy gets all the glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not share my glory. Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith. Not, a, not of works, it's a gift of God. Anybody know what the next part says? Lest anyone should boast. God does it in a way that our mouths are shut. We, we can't say, look what I did. Because he does it completely independent of us. I remember several years ago when I first studied Romans 9 to 11, and I just saw God hardens and God shows mercy, and I just thought, nobody's ever told me this. Nobody's ever, ever, I've never studied this. I didn't know God. Literally, it was a shocking vision of God. It was a vision of God I had never had. I, I kind of was one of those people that I believed in God, but I just didn't think he had that much power. I thought, you know, sometimes God wins and sometimes the devil wins. And that was a sad, sad vision of God. And then I opened this book and I saw a vision of a God that is absolutely sovereign. Now, what surprised me is how relevant that vision of God is to our daily life. See, we come in here and we study theology and we think, well, that was a nice lesson, let's go home. But see... Remember what A.W. Tozer said? What you think about God, or when you think about God, what you think is the most important thing about you. You will only rise to the level of your vision of God. Your worship will only rise to the level of your vision of God. And that is incredibly relevant to our everyday life. Let me, let me I want to talk about something tonight. In our culture today, we are literally drowning in a sea of triviality or banality. I mean, all we want to do anymore is be entertained. Isn't that the truth? That's all anybody cares about. Entertain me. Entertain me. Who do we pay the most money to? Is it our teachers? Is it our preachers? Is it, is it people that are building things and making things? No. It's somebody that can put a basketball through a hoop or carry a football across a goal line or throw a baseball or 100 miles an hour. We pay them insane amounts of money because what do they do? They entertain us. They don't make anything. They don't create anything. They don't build anything. They, don't, they just entertain us. 
You can get on TikTok and, 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 and as, it don't matter what you do. You can just lip sync dance moves and more subscribers you get, you can make a million dollars. That's insane. The, the world is literally drowning in this just banality of just, I mean, everybody's on their phones, everybody's watching videos, everybody's doing this. And it, it, to me, it's just so without purpose. There's just no meaning to, to most people's lives as they go through their, their, their daily walk. And the reason is because it's God that gives us purpose. And what we've done is we've removed God from our society. We've removed him from our schools. And most people have literally just removed him from their daily life. And what's left is banality. What's left is triviality. What's left is just silliness. It's no wonder, folks, that our culture sinks lower and lower and lower and lower because we've taken God out of it. <clears throat> and God is the only thing that gives us relevance. God is the only thing that gives our life meaning. God is the only thing that, that gives our life purpose. Now, what really makes this terrible is that this banality has invaded the church. You go into a bookstore, and I'll challenge you to do this. Go into a bookstore and look at the books. And I guarantee you that the best-selling books in that bookstore aren't about the grandeur of God or the majesty of God or the sovereignty of God, or the beauty of God, or the mercy of God, or the love of God, or the holiness of God, guess what they're about? They're about you. You're, so you can have a better life, so you can feel better about yourself, so you can love yourself more. Those are the best-selling books, and, and, and the majority of the books are about us. And churches, instead of preaching the Word of God... And just living on that, they have resorted to titillation. I, I wish I had to make that sign up, but that is a, that's not just one church. That's multiple churches that are doing ser sermon series on something like that. Why? So they can titillate. So they can entertain. So they can get people in. But you see, if you get people in through entertainment, guess what you got to do to keep them? You got to entertain them. You just got to entertain them. And that's a sad state of affairs. Now, why do the churches do that? Why do they feel the need that I have to, to go? I mean, listen, it's crazy what's out there. I don't know if y'all know that. We, there's people, there's, I read the other day a, church, a, a pastor preached a sermon making a cappuccino. He had a whole uh, thing up on stage and he preached his sermon. He's making a cappuccino. What's wrong with just standing in front of a Bible and preaching the power of the Word of God? Where, where did that go? Why do we feel like we got to resort to all these gimmicks? Why do churches feel that way? A.W. Closer, I'll give you another quote. Of he, said, he said this, The church that can't worship must be entertained. The church that can't worship must be entertained. Now ask yourself, why, what is it about a church that can't worship? What, what's stopping them from worshiping? Let me tell you what's stopping them. The human heart was made to be touched and awed by the vision of a soul-staggering God. That's what we're made for, is to see this vision. Remember last week we talked about hell? And we, and we looked at hell and said, you know, we give somebody a, a, a life sentence for killing a person. What does the Bible say is the, is the proper punishment for sin against God? 
And the, and the Bible says it's an eternity. Why? Because that's how valuable God is. That's how great God is. That, that's the kind of God our heart was made to, to grab a hold of. Because let me tell you when, when you, when you see a God like that, guess what happens? You, you, you look up. You begin to worship that God. But we're not presenting that God. We're presenting a watered-down, mushy God who, who's not in control. I mean, just a, it's a mess out there. And instead of being able to draw people in through the power of the Word of God, we're having to draw them in through entertainment, and we're having to keep them through entertainment. You see, when we disconnect someone from that vision of an incredible God, that human beings will inevitably debase themselves. They'll debase themselves emotionally, they'll do it physically, they'll do it uh, intellectually, and they'll do it uh, spiritually. A true vision of God leads to something else, and that is true worship. A true vision of God always leads to true worship. Now, why do I bring all this up? I bring all this up because this is exactly what happens at the end of Romans 11. Paul has been, for two and a half months, we started in chapter 9, and for three chapters, Paul has just been building this vision of this incredible, sovereign God of the universe. And when he gets done, when he gets done, what, what happens to him? This is his response. He breaks out into a doxology. Now, there's a word that we don't use very much in the church anymore. But a doxology is just an expression of praise. If you set it to music, it's a hymn of praise. But that's all it is. It's, a, it's an expression of praise. One of the most well-known ones was written by a guy by the name of Thomas Ken in 1674. That's about 350 years ago. And you all know it. It goes like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. That's a doxology of praise written by Thomas Ken in 1674. So, so that's one way to do it is write a hymn. But there's also doxologies in the Bible. One of the greatest ones is found in the book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. Listen to this. This is, this is one of the most beautiful things ever written. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You see, that's a man right there that's got a vision of an incredible God. And what comes out is just this expression of, of praise. You see, when we... Anybody know what theology is? What's, what does theology mean? Anybody? Study of God. Biology is the study of bio, and criminology is the study of crims, and you, you get that, right? <laughs> Theology is the study of God. When we study God and we rightly grasp it, we really see what's on that page, and it makes an impression on our heart. Folks, listen, that should always lead to a doxology. How, how awesome this God is, how wonderful this God is, how great this God is. This is why we do this. One of the reasons that we do it. So we have a right vision that we know who this God is that we serve. 
And any real right revelation of God should always lead us to exult over the wonders of God. And that's exactly what Paul does. When Paul finishes these three chapters talking about how God is the Lord of history and he's working and he's, he's doing all this stuff, he just breaks out in this doxology of praise. Let's read it, verses 33 to 36. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. That is, a, that is some beautiful scripture right there. Now I want to look at verse 35, or 33 for just a few minutes here. And I want to look at some of what Paul says. The first thing he says is, Oh, the depth. The depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, depth implies hidden. Daniel uh, 2.22 says he reveals deep and hidden things. Several years ago, uh, Kathy had always, always wanted to go to the Caribbean, so we went to the uh, Cayman Islands, we took the boys with us, and, and uh, Josh likes to fish, and so we chartered a boat to go fishing. And uh, down there, they, they ask you, do you want to go reef fishing, or do you want to go, um, what do they call it, Josh? Um, I'm going to miss the shell fishing, or something like that. Anyway, because down there, there, it's real flat off the island, and it gets out there, and it just goes... There's actually like a cliff, and it just drops off. And so we said, well, can we do both? And they said, sure. So the guy took us out. And, and when you're on the reef, every, the water's just crystal clear. You can be in 20, 30 feet of water, and you can see the fish on the bottom. But, buddy, when you go over that cliff, and you get down to where that water's 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 feet deep, it's just this dark, dark, dark blue. It's the same water. But it is so deep, you cannot see what is down there. Well, that's what Paul is saying, that the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God aren't shallow. You, you can't just pick up the Bible in a, in a casual look through and see all that God wants you to know. He's deep. You've got to get in there and you've got to want it. Now, the beauty of it is that you, we've got all these deep things. They're, they're not obvious to just a, a casual perusal of God's Word. But He will reveal those things to us if we go after Him and search after Him with all of our heart. The incredible thing about God, the Bible, you know the Bible says, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, we'll spend an eternity with Him and every day and every week and every month and every year, you'll learn more and more and more and you'll never get to the bottom. You'll never get bored. You'll never, it's unbelievable. How... <laughs> Sometimes it just blows my mind how, how incredible this being is that we serve. It is so much higher than, than us. The other thing that depth implies is reality. You know, Sarah, uh, when I, back when I first taught this a few years ago, I was coming home from work one day, and I was listening to NPR. I don't normally listen to NPR, but this day I was listening to it. And they were interviewing a woman about theology. And she said this. She said, uh, I was just listening to it. She said, theology is poetry. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's beautiful, man. <laughs> tell, tell me some more about that. And she said, yeah, you know, uh, uh, religion is an art form. 
just going on. These are educated people with PhDs. And honestly, I wanted to puke. I wanted to throw up. It's like a, it's like a three-year-old um, saying they don't believe in mom and daddy while they're eating the food that mom and daddy are feeding them. I mean, what are they even talking about? They're going on and on, spouting human wisdom. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't educated. It, 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 was, it was ugly. It was nasty. They had no idea of the depth of the God that they were talking about. You see, when Paul says, oh, the depth, he's saying, man, there is, this isn't some imagination. This isn't some art form. This isn't some any of that. This is a reality that undergirds everything we do and everything we know. See, Paul could have said, oh, the heights of the riches of God. And by the way, that's probably true. But he didn't say that, did he? See, God is at the bottom of things. God is at the foundation of everything. No matter how deep you go, God is there. God is the meaning for everything in your life. In God, there's meaning in your cancer. In God, there's meaning in your promotion and in your job. In God, there's meaning in your family. There's meaning in everything you do. You take Jesus out, you take God out, it's meaningless. It's purposeless. You're just, I don't know what you're doing. You're just making time till it's all over. I am so glad, so happy that I get to live this life and I know every day there's a reality to it, that I'm making a difference, that I'm, I've got purpose in my life, not because of anything I do, but because Jesus gives me that in everything that I do. Let's go back to verse 33 again. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. So he didn't just say God is deep. He gave us three things. He says the depth of the riches of God. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the earth, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Listen, God owns everything. He owns everything. That house that you're living in, that's His. He's just loaning it to you for a little while. That car you're driving, the breath that's in your body, it belongs to Him. That's a gift from, from Him. Nothing exists outside of God that is not God. That's why Paul said, by the way, in verse 35, who's given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? You can't give anything to God that He hadn't already given to you. He owns it all. We are completely in His debt. There's no negotiating with God. We, we have no bargaining position. We are squatters on His property using His tools, using His houses, using His... Everything belongs to Him. Every breath we take is a gift from Him. Acts 17.25, God is not served by human hands as though He needs anything. For he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. By the way, not only that, God himself, not only does he own everything, everything, he himself is infinitely valuable. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul talks about the riches of his grace. Romans 2, 4, the riches of his kindness. Romans 9, 23, the riches of his glory. Those aren't things that, that are outside of him. Those are all things that are inside of him. I mean, just in and of himself, he is infinitely valuable. This is one of my favorites. The depth of the knowledge of God. Sometimes I just like to think about what I'm about to tell you. I just like to think it through and just see if I can grasp it. Do you understand that God knows every recorded fact right now? He knows every single thing there is to know in this world. There's nothing he doesn't know. 
How many grains of sand are on this planet? He knows that. How many hairs are on your head? He knows that according to Jesus, Jesus in Luke 12, 7. What's the total of all the hairs on every head in this world? He knows that. Or in this room, he knows that. How many drops of water are in this world? He knows that. He knows every recorded fact. He knows it at the macro level. He, he knows what the planets are doing and what every astro, uh, asteroid and, and meteor are, are, are doing. He knows what every grain of sand on every planet. But he knows the micro level. He knows where every electron is and every molecule and every particle, every photon. He knows what they're doing. He knows every human being, what we think, what we're planning to do. And by the way, when those things come together and create events, he knows all about those events and he can think of the billions of possibilities. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And, and this is what blows my mind. He knows all that without even a slight strain on his brain. Doesn't even, doesn't even bother him. He knows all that. What kind of God is this? That's what it means to be God that we, that we serve. 1133 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, the depth of the knowledge, and the depth of the wisdom. Wisdom, by the way, is using knowledge rightly. Just in case you didn't know, it's what wisdom is. Having knowledge, but then using it the right way. You see, God is able to take all that knowledge and use every bit of it to accomplish His purposes and accomplishes His will. There's a great story in the Bible that shows this. Matthew 17, one of my favorite stories. Jesus and His disciples have been out and been going around the country. And they come back to uh, Capernaum, uh, kind of their, their, their home base there. And it says there in, in Acts, uh, Matthew 17, 24, it says the collectors of the two drachma tax come up to Peter. Now, these aren't Romans, by the way. These are Jews. This is a Jewish tax for the temple. Okay, So these aren't the Romans trying to get money. These, this is a Jewish tax that Jewish people have levied against the people for some kind of maybe maintenance on the temple or upgrade on the temple or whatever the case may be. So they come back into town, and Peter's, maybe he had to go to the market. Jesus is in the house. Peter's outside, and they, come, they see Peter, and they come up to him, and they ask him, they said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter's like, well, yeah, sure he does. And I guess they left. Well, he goes back inside, and Jesus spoke to him first. So before he even tells Jesus what just happened, Jesus looks at him and says, Peter... What do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, we don't live in the days of kings and kingdoms anymore. We live in the days of presidents and, and things like that. But in that day, when the kings levied a tax, Jesus said, who are they taxing? Are they taxing everybody else or do they tax their own family? Well, what's the answer to that? Well, they tax everybody else, right? They don't tax their own children. They're getting money for themselves. Just so you know, it's still true today. And we won't drive too far down this because some of y'all will probably get angry. But who do you think, who are, who, who, when they want to raise taxes, who's getting taxed? Are they taxing themselves? No. No, it's you and I. See, they got the accountants that know how to do all the loopholes. They get out of all that. It's us that bears the brunt. It's always been that way. By the way, it always will be that way. I don't, I'm not saying it's right, it's wrong, but don't make a big deal out of it. That's just human nature. Those in power always do those kind of things. So this is what Jesus said to him. He said, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, remember, this is a temple tax. It's a tax for God. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm free. I'm the son of God. We're sons of God. We're not beholden to be taxed for this temple tax. That's what he's saying. But then he goes on and he says this, However, not to give offense, go down to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel, which is four drachmas, and take that and give it to them for you and yourself. Now think about that for one moment. Somewhere back in time, some fisherman had to drop a shekel out of his pocket. And then somewhere in time, this fish comes along for whatever reason and picks up this shekel into its mouth. And then here's Jesus that tells Peter some point in time, Peter, go down to the shore, cast your line, first fish you catch, open his mouth, take that shekel and go pay the tax. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this that controls the, all of those events that the shekel doesn't get buried, that this fish comes along, that, that it's just there at the right... He's, he's in control of everything. The macro level, the micro level, the whole nine yards. This is the kind of God that we serve. That's why Paul says this. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who can be his counselor? That's a rhetorical question. It means what? Nobody. Nobody can, can, can do that. Nobody can tell him what to do. Yet, folks, isn't that the one thing that most everybody does? Don't everybody think they can do it better than him? There's not a one of us in here sitting here that hasn't at one time thought, well, if I was in charge of this situation, this is what I would do. Yes? Don't we think... I know there's a better way. I know the Bible doesn't say to do this, but I'm pretty sure this is going to work if I do it. We all question his counsel. We all question his, his wisdom and, and what Paul's trying to tell us. Who do, you, who do we think we are? The depth of the, of the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. You cannot counsel him. He's not interested in that, but that's what we do. We give advice to God. He doesn't run the world the way that we think that we ought to. And that's what proud sinners do. I could do it better. Finally, Paul closes chapter 11 with one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I love this verse. It is the, one of the most profound verses. Let's read verse 36. It says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From him are all things, through him are all things, and to him are all things. You see, everything in this world, all the riches, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, they originate in Jesus, they are created by Jesus, and they exist for one thing, and that is to glorify his name. That's the meaning behind everything that goes on. By the way, this is why we are here. That's why you're created. Is to bring glory to Him. He is the final and ultimate meaning of all reality. You find purpose in Him. I said it before. What's the purpose in your cancer? Look to Jesus. What's the purpose in your job? Look to Jesus. What's the purpose in your marriage? Look to Jesus. 
What's the purchase in your children? Look to Jesus. That's where you'll find the meaning and the reality behind that. Which means, by the way, if you flip it around, take Jesus out of anything and it's meaningless. It's purposeless. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't want to live that kind of life. I got one life. I, I want to get it as right as I can. See, this is why God has created the universe. It's why God ordains history. It's why God created us, and that is to make Him known. To make Him known. Romans 9-11 has given us an incredible vision of God. Why did Paul do it? So that we can fulfill our purpose. How can you, make, how can you glorify God that you don't really know? Everybody with me? How can you really glorify God rightly if you don't know Him fully? This is what Paul has been laboring in these chapters to show us that the God that you serve is incredible. He is absolutely incredible. Now go out there and make Him uh, known.